0: Welcome to the Postcard Academy, I'm your host, Sarah Michatel. In last week's episode, my guest Katie Parla shared some of the best restaurants in Rome, and she also explained why it's possible to get a bad meal in the city. The same is true in Paris. My guest today says that for a time, Paris had become prisoner to its own grand history. While chefs and artists in other countries innovated, Paris rested on its laurels, serving up mediocre food and experiences to tourists seeking a cliché. Today I'm speaking with Philadelphia native and Paris resident Lindsay Tremuda about her best-selling book, The New Paris. Lindsay's book champions the creative class that's rejecting complacency. Inspired by the creativity they see in other countries and disillusioned by the financial crisis, these artisans and entrepreneurs are striking out on their own. We'll talk about the people and places making Paris a contemporary city bursting with energy. You'll hear about the best places to go for food, cocktails, shopping, so much more. I've included all the details for you on postcardacademy.co, so don't worry about writing anything down. And now to my conversation with Lindsay. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So you are from Philadelphia, but you've been in Paris for about 10 years now, is it? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm in my 11th year already, if you can believe it.
0: So when did this love affair with France begin?
1: Um, well, it started at a at a fairly young age. I started learning French when I was 12 in middle school when we're forced into, uh, into language study, but, you know, without any expectation that it would carry me even through high school. Um, and, and what I discovered was that I really enjoyed learning it. And there was something about the melody in, in the language itself that I found beautiful. And then when I learned more about the culture, um, you know, it, it sounded like my values were more in line with theirs. Um, and then I was able to go to France when I was in high school for a couple of weeks. And then again, when I was in college twice, and that really sealed the deal for me.
0: I find it really interesting that you said you identify more with the French culture than the the American culture. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, that could get my get me in trouble. Um, I just mean, you know, as soon as I learned that culturally speaking, the French really value things like time spent around a dinner table together, uh, time away from work to, you know, have a breather refresh recharge their batteries uh travel those those things it just seemed like their priorities were in order and americans were just
0: you know living to work so after school you decided yes paris is the place for me i'm going back how as an american were you able to make that happen uh how were you able to live and also work in paris
1: it was tough. I um, I did my last semester of undergrad in Paris and uh, and then stayed. I was at that point living with my boyfriend, who's became my husband, so he's French. Um, and I tried to get a job the way anybody would get a job, but I only had a bachelor's degree. And the education system here is a bit different. And um, college students, uh, basically all of them intern. And that internship sort of acts as an entry-level job so where americans who just graduated from college are able to start working at these in these junior junior type roles well those roles are actually given to interns in 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 paris it turned out that i you know sort of the way forward especially if i wanted to have a career in in france was to go back to school so here for certain types um sort of a certain category of job uh you really need to have a master's degree uh and So I went to grad school, I studied global communication at the American University of Paris. And, you know, it wasn't ultimately in my my sort of life plan, I did not expect to go to grad school, um, or at least not then. But, you know, I was in a different environment, and it worked out. So um, I did that. And then immediately started, um, you know, I did have an internship at the end of that, uh, that program, which, of course, gave me the experience that, you know, no company was going to give me as a as a full time salaried employee, so i got my way into branding and advertising, and then once I graduated was working in 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 tech but Meanwhile, while I was in school, I got married, and that's legally how I was able to stay so okay. I still had my student visa, but I was able to changed the status of my my residency card because I had gotten married and I was now with a French citizen. And so then I had you know I was allowed to work and I eventually found myself in different types of jobs. You know, I I'm, I'm writing a lot. I write for for magazines and newspapers and, and and I still do consulting for for agencies doing digital and social media strategy because that pays the bills and you know, it's still one of my interests. And I also and then, really love your blog Lost in Cheeseland. So that actually started back when I had just graduated from grad school and I was really frustrated. I was quite lost as the name (laughs) uh, entails. And, um, and it was really sort of a venting platform and I never anticipated it would become anything else. And, and then it did. and, And I started taking it more seriously and, you know, spending a lot of time working on it and going out and discovering things and
0: talking to people. And did this lead to your books?
1: Well, I would say that uh, my work as a journalist led to the book. Um, I had obviously been documenting some of these changes that the city has had been going, undergoing for different outlets. And, you know, but always sort of, you know, oh, there's this food movement happening. And that was very different from what might be happening in the arts or in, you know, hospitality. And And so the book was actually me realizing that there was...
0: Uh, this link between all of the changes and wanting to document that. So your new book, um, The New Paris, it celebrates the new creative class that's transforming Paris. Um, Before we talk about the new, I would love for you to just give us some context on the old Paris. So you've said that Paris had become the victim of its own deified history, that mediocrity had become the accepted norm. I'd love for you to talk more about that. And then also the role that Paris cliches may have played in that.
1: Well, I mean, Paris has gone through so many evolutions in its history, and and has been super progressive at many points. Um, and and it always positioned itself, um, or you know, the authorities, the the the, the people in power, um, the the intellectuals, were really raising Paris up to be um, a leader in 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 any number of fields. Um, and and that's that's a meaty history to uphold over time. I mean, certainly you have architecturally, culturally, artistically, economically, um, gastronomically. I mean, it, it was just so strong in so many areas um, and, and looked upon by other nations with such awe. I think even when I moved here, there was, there were these sort of grand restaurants um, revered in all the guidebooks, but if I were to go to to any number of them, I would leave feeling like I was missing something like, you know, what is so good about this? It so they're sort even... of
0: resting on their laurels.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And um, and I think there's also to a degree, you know, when you're a tourist capital, you think, well, it's fine. There will always be other tourists. And I think that's a mentality that happens in any number of, um, you know, tourist destinations where you think, well, it doesn't have to be perfect because there will always be someone new coming in. Mm -hmm. You know, and why, why, what is the incentive to try harder? Um, but that created that mediocrity that I mentioned. And, um, and, and you really felt that in food. Um, and, and that's when, you know, food critics from around the world were starting to question whether there was still any, you know, any value to what was going on in France. Could we really look to France or, or Paris anymore as, as a, as a, as an inspiration? Um, and I think that shook them up a bit. Um, and 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 that's when there were some key chefs and, and key restaurant owners who who wanted to make things better and wanted to show that not everybody was cutting corners. Um, and so that's that's one one major area where change was was truly felt.
0: And so tell me more about this new Paris and the new bistro movement. Well, what I call the new Paris, again,
1: it's meant to be kind of tongue in cheek, because, like I said, um <laughs> there are many, many points in the city's history where it was seen as new and innovative. And, um, but for me, it's at once, um, a movement, very energetic movement, um, where people are creating and, and reviving traditions and trying to make the city a more, um, a more open place. Um, and it's also, you know, more of a global city. Um, so not just in, Statistically, there have always been uh, or sort of, um, you know, if you look at a census, there have always been immigrants and and foreign populations. But, you know, that cosmopolitanism seemed to be sort of just on paper and not in practice. Was there really much um, openness to those other cultures, Um, whether it's them themselves or uh, the ideas that they bring and their concepts and and that? that really started to change. So for me, the new Paris is also sort of this open arms, um, curiosity and acceptance of other other ideas, other influences, and it and it not being treated as though it's going to somehow endanger uh, the Parisian lifestyle, the Parisian uh, identity.
0: Yeah. And it's true what you say about social media, like we're not living in bubbles anymore. We can see what's happening in New York. We can see what's happening in berlin um entrepreneurship seems to just be taking hold everywhere in the world you know historically the french have had more job protections than they probably do now and if they don't have this job protecting them anymore it's like freeing in a way to go out and start your own thing
1: yeah it's scary and i think some people won't thrive in that kind of a environment but a lot of people have and you know i look even the fact that you know um the fact that I was interested in a number of different things. And even now I do have, you know, sort of different revenue streams and different activities that I do, you know, that that is less seen as bizarre as it would have, you know, 10 years ago, uh, even eight years ago, five years ago. Um, And I think that's just, yeah, the culture is shifting, the job market is not at all what it ever used to be. And, you know, and so it's sort of forced people to realize that, Things are changing, whether you like it or not.
0: And how has Paris changed you? Let's start with food. How has Paris changed the way you eat?
1: I definitely eat uh, a more diverse array of, of foods, whether it's from vegetables to meats uh, to preparations. I don't find much joy in cooking myself. Um, but I will say that when we do go food shopping and when I do um whether I'm cooking or it's my husband cooking, you know, I want to make sure we have the right things, uh, the right produce. And by right, I mean, sort of, you know, doesn't necessarily come from a million miles away, um, is, you know, plucked from the local green grocer versus a big box supermarket. Um, and I really want to try to support, and I, and and I've been doing this ever since I've been here, you know, the different, uh, artisans. So, you know, going to a cheesemonger, going to um, the the Greek deli to get, you know, f- feta and pita and all sorts of things like that. Um, so it's just identifying who these makers are and and how I can I can help support them.
0: Continuing with food, Paris is becoming more vegetarian friendly. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
1: What's been good is that there have been a lot of big chefs who have not only overhauled their menus to include more plants uh, and vegetables, making sure they weren't just these side dishes, but actually part of the main feature of any dish, even even meat dishes. Um, but then, you know, the, the extension from there is having all vegetarian options as well. So it has to sort of, it typically starts at the top um, with big chefs who are who are willing to make those changes and see the value in that and and maybe the need from clients. Um, and then, and then it goes down the chain. Um, and you get people who open, you know, hundred percent veggie places. Um, we've got this great, uh, we've got many at this point, but you know, there's one I'm thinking of it's a, it's a Mediterranean, um, almost, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it's, it, it is like a, it's like a Mediterranean canteen and it's all sorts of, veggie salads and and tarts and um their shakshuka and other things like that and and it's great because What's the name of this place it's called Ima I-M-A okay uh, it's right on the on on the canal did you have him on your podcast no not him I had uh who did I have oh I had um Guy Griffin from Cafe Oberkampf and Cafe Mericourt okay. who also has shakshuka on his menu um which is great. He was one of the first people to do it. Um, but his, his restaurants are not a hundred percent veggie. Okay. Um, uh, but this Ema place definitely is. And there are others, you know, there are tons of other examples now. And, and it was sort of like, oh, people either are eating that way all the time, or maybe they're just, yeah, I, you know, I eat meat, but I don't want to have it all the time. And, um, and so the fact that it started, you know, from sort of top chefs and made its way down
0: has been great. Moving on to coffee, so visitors to Paris often have a very romantic idea about sitting in a cafe all day, drinking great coffee. Talk to me a little bit about this culture and and also the quality of coffee in Paris.
1: Well, the the the, the distinction that needs to be made first is 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 just that it's that um, there's cafe culture and then there's coffee culture, and um, in Paris those two do not or have not traditionally mixed together, which means you have the cafe setup, up, which is a, a social gathering place. Um, historically, it's been also a place for the resistance to form. One writer has called it, um, has, have, have, has called the Parisian cafe a cauldron of, of thought and conversation. And the drink itself was an accessory to that. Um, and then you have coffee, which if you take what you know what has been served in 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 Parisian cafes for generations. It's it's pretty bad. Um, part of that has to do with the types of beans that the colonials were harvesting um, in West Africa and were bringing back. Um, but then you also have in just rampant. Um, miscare, misuse. Um, there are beans that are over roasted. They're stale. The machines aren't cleaned properly. Um, you know, a, 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 an espresso might sit on the machine for, you know, an ungodly amount of time before it's served to you because someone forgot, but you're still going to get it even though it's no longer, you know, it's no longer good. And and it hasn't been treated as a fresh pro- product, although it is. And so you have this, this um, the emergence of a coffee movement, which is, you know, what we call third wave or specialty coffee um where these the beans are coming from um the, the right altitudes they're coming from um sometimes single plantations um so you're 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 tracking not only the quality of the bean but then how it gets transported then how it gets roasted then how it's brewed um then how the barista will pull the shot or prepare your latte um so it's just an actual. Uh, it's treated now as an actual fresh product, um, but not everywhere. So it's it's still kind of a niche, um, a niche product. It'll be in Anglo style coffee shops. That's starting to change too. Some hotels and and nice restaurants are serving much better quality coffee. Um, Supplied by local roasters. And you also also have a place like La Fontaine de Belleville, which is from uh, it's a it's sort of a corner cafe run by one of the Parisian roasters themselves. And it looks exactly like, you know, your quintessential um, retro uh, Parisian Parisian cafe, where they serve beer and croque monsieur and ham sandwiches. Um, But the quality of the coffee they're serving is far better.
0: And it sounds like uh, that trend in quality is taking place in the cocktail world as well. I've read before that the 1920s were sort of the golden era of cocktails in Paris and then that quality sort of went down for quite a long time, and then in the two thousands it started to um, evolve for the better. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that came about? How that like positive change came about?
1: Well, um, you know, the, the cocktails were always served in in luxury hotels, and you'd have maybe some mojitos in in you know dive bars and and just regular bars where people weren't actually looking to consume anything that was creative or interesting or with with fresh ingredients it was just you know whatever your classic you know and and in paris when i moved here it was the mojito that was i mean anyone you go into any bar and that's what someone was ordering um but you had the experimental group um who are at this point known even outside of paris because they have establishments in london in ibiza and in new york um, and they really spearheaded this entire change. Uh, they had traveled, they'd been, uh, when they were students, they were spending time in Canada and they were spending time in the U S and they saw this rising cocktail movement, um, that there were bars that were at the time it was, you know, the, the big, the big boom of, uh, prohibition era, uh, style cocktail joints or, um, speakeasies and, but it was fun. It created a different environment. The cocktails themselves didn't cost a fortune um, and everything was really well made. Different types of spirits were being used, um, fresh, uh, fresh syrups, homemade um, condiments, um, all of these different things that no one in Paris was doing. Um, and if you wanted any kind of elaborate or you know, classic cocktail, you were going to the hotels and that cost like 20 to 25 euros a drink if not more. Um, and so they came back to Paris and were like, okay, there's something we can create here. And initially, um, when they launched the Experimental Cocktail uh, Club, it wasn't easy. I mean, they still got people who were asking for mojitos when they came in and, and you know, they sort of let that fly for a while, but then would try to say, well, you know, if you like that and that kind of a drink, you know, let us make something else for you that you might like. And And that just sort of got things rolling and, and they were sort of the primary leaders. And then you had Quixotic Projects, um, a group that came after, uh, and they, they started off with a place called Candelaria. and One that's of my favorite a,
0: places in Paris and I also mean, co-founded by our friend, mutual friend, Josh. Right. Right. Um, and Josh
1: is American. The other two founders, one is American and one is Colombian. And, um, they, I mean, what it, it was really a simple idea, you know, a taqueria in the front. You go through this unmarked door and you're in a cocktail bar. Um, it's just that those cocktails were, you know, above and beyond what anybody had ever tried here. And they've gone on to win tremendous awards and are still ranked uh, very highly in the world's 50 best bars listing um, just this year. I, I, I Don't quote me on it, but I want to say they're in the top 15. And well deserved, so, I would say.
0: I, oh, I had the best drink of my life uh, in Candelaria. It was a cilantro margarita, which to me sounded awful, but when I tried it, I was like, "Wow, this is, this really uh, yeah impressed me." Well, you're you're
1: certainly not one of those people who can't tolerate cilantro. Apparently, yeah. there are just some people genetically that taste soap when they eat it. So. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those two really got got all this off the ground. And now you have rum bars. You have bars like Le Syndicat that uh, that really celebrate French spirits, spirits that French people themselves barely know and barely understand. Um, Cognac and Armagnac are, you know, 95 percent of the production is exported. So, of course, the French aren't the ones drinking it. Um so, you know, there's there's a big celebration of what can be done with mixed drinks. Um, and and that's that's wonderful. So there's a there's a vibrant cocktail scene and really they caught up quite quickly. You know, you think 2007, that's not that long, considering that it was far more mature, the market or the, the scene was far more mature in in parts of the U.S. and in London. So, you know, not a bad performance, I'd say, from yeah. the French. So
0: where would you where would we find you and your friend hanging out on a Friday night? Well, if I'm not at home with my cats,
1: which has become more of a <laughs> a common scenario, um, it, it, I might be in any number of places. I might be at Martin, which is um, in the 11th. And it's I mean, it's so hard to explain because it's so much more than a wine bar and it's so much more than a than a like a cave a manger, which means, I mean, cause you can go and have a drink. You don't have to eat. Um, but it's all, I mean, they're all, uh, it's all small plates. And when I say small plates, I mean, that sounds, I, I, I tend to eye roll now when someplace is a, a small plates restaurant, because I always end up hungry, but here it's really not expensive. So you can order one of everything for yourself if you want and you'll be fine. Um, and that's the thing it's inexpensive. It's, it's super laid back. It, you end up running into, you know, your neighbors and other people who are into food and, and, and wine in the in the in the community. Um, and the wines are inexpensive, too. So it's just a, an old like just laid back and there's no specific design of the place. You might I, you can barely see that there's a sign, but it's called Martin. And I do like to go there. I also sometimes stop for a cocktail at Bizou, which um, is all, almost across the street from from Martin which is a cocktail bar um, where there's no menu and you tell them what you like, what kinds of flavors you like, if there are any spirits you like, and they'll concoct something for you. Um, you know, or I might be at Café Méricourt because they just launched uh, apero So they're now open through early evening um, from like, I don't know, six to ten. Um,
0: so, yeah, I like to stay local. Um, and that's your neighborhood, the 11th.
1: Yeah. So basically everything I've just cited is in the 11th. It sounds like a great Um, neighborhood. No, it's super fun and there's so many options. You could go up to La Buvette, which is a tiny wine bar that's very well loved. Uh, You can go to Clamato or Septime La Cave, which is a wine cellar or a cave à manger. So, there, there, I mean, there are really so many options in one neighborhood that you really don't need to leave. Um, and then on occasion, I will say I like something a little bit fancier. And when I had a friend in town recently who had never been to Paris, she said, I really want to go to the Ritz. I know that sounds, you know, kind of ridiculous and it's over the top. And I was like, you know what, let's go. And there is something fun about straddling both of those worlds, you know, hanging out at your local dive or a canteen and, and then occasionally just splurging on the experience of being in a, in, in, in the, in that, in the environment of a, of a palace hotel. Um, so, so yeah, I think Paris is, is great in the sense that you have sort of for high, middle and low, there's a, there's a hangout everywhere.
0: So if I were going to come visit you for the weekend, and let's say I've never been to Paris, where would you take me?
1: I mean, I would do a lot of walking, so I would tell you to bring your your walking shoes. Um, definitely around the canal and everything that's developing over there, but even further up toward uh, the Bastion de la Villette, so that's in the 19th. And you know there are these art house cinemas that uh, flank the the water ba- uh, the water basin. Um, and as you go up, there's a, a craft beer brewery. You've got this awesome cafe third space it's like a hybrid space called uh, le pavillon des canaux and inside it it's all decked out like an actual home sort of a an old fashioned kitschy home but uh you know it's a, it it operates as a cafe so you can go in get coffee snacks cake whatever but you can choose any room in the in the house so you can have a have your coffee in the bathtub upstairs that sounds so cozy and through the window you see the water um so it's just it's just sort of eclectic and to me something that could exist only in Paris. Um, but I would take you up there because that's an area that's really wonderful and it's like a village unto itself. Um, I would probably take you for lunch or dinner at Le 52 deux Faubourg Saint-Denis, which is one of my favorites uh, in the Saint-Denis area. Um, and then, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe surprise you and take you to the left bank of all places and, and, and to a restaurant I really like there. So It would be a lot of walking and a lot of exploring and then choosing based on whatever we feel like.
0: So stay out of the taxis and just walk around. I mean, I
1: do. Yeah. I mean, I really do a lot of walking. I take the bus when that's most convenient. I take the metro. um, And and yeah, I mean, Ubers are here if you really need them. Um, But it's such a well-connected city that you really can do everything either by foot, two wheels uh, or on the bus or the metro
0: so what are some tourist traps we should avoid whether it's food or attractions and maybe what are some alternatives
1: well that's a tough one because i would say as a general rule the establishments that are you know found directly around major landmarks like the eiffel tower or um notre dame are pretty touristy mediocre you know overpriced for what it is um In another example, though, our friend Josh from Quixotic Projects has just launched a restaurant called Les Grands Verts in the Palais de Tokyo, which itself is a kind of monument. So that's in the 16th arrondissement, and it is a contemporary art museum. uh, And he and his team are now behind this fantastic bar restaurant that's inside the museum. So I look at him as an example of like that's an alternative. You don't want to eat around the Eiffel Tower. You don't want to eat, um, you know, somewhere, you know, around the Place de Trocadero because it's, you know, you really aren't convinced that any of it is going to be of quality. Well, then you walk down to, to the Palais de Tokyo and you go into his restaurant, um, and I hope that will start to get things changing in, 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 in in terms of museum dining. Um, But other than that, like if we look at Saint-Michel, which is a high tourist area, I would say just keep walking um, and and know where you want to go to eat. I mean, that's really the thing. I find Paris to be a tough spot when you just want to improvise, unless you know. You know, so I know uh, a handful of street food places and and restaurants that might be open all day. So if I find myself in that neighborhood, I'm not totally um, at a loss. But if you're traveling and you don't know and you have not done any research, you might end up feeling stuck. Um and, and there are so many I mean, there's like a landmark in every neighborhood. So it's it's really tough to avoid some of these traps. But um I mean, I guess my key suggestion is to do a minimal amount of research. And if you think you're gonna be around the Louvre or the Eiffel Tower on a given day, make sure you've sort of scoped out a couple
0: of options before you head out. Yeah. Well people should definitely be checking out your book and your blog <laughs> too. You don't I mean, to, I hope so. You don't want to go all the way to Paris and have a bad meal because there's no need. Like there's no you don't need it's easy to not do that. Um sure. how can we not look like a tourist in Paris? give us some fashion tips. I see that these
1: like big oversized backpacks have come back. Um, like maybe don't take that if you're gonna go to a go out to dinner. Um wear shorts only when it's warm out. I mean that's is a dead giveaway that you're a tourist when you're wearing short, you know, Americans tend to be able to withstand cold temperatures, uh, and still wear shorts. I don't, I don't understand it. Um, I mean, I just saw a guy the other day wearing shorts and a t-shirt and I'm like, he just freezing outside. Um, and, and you just know they're not from here. Um, which is fine. I mean, good on him if he's happy doing that, but you know, it does, it does stand out. Um, muted colors are generally better than wearing anything very flashy. Um, But I'd say just be comfortable. There's nothing worse than seeing someone who's trying too hard to fit in and just look like they can't even walk or they're just miserable. Um, Um,
0: Who are some of your favorite French designers? Well, designers are shops.
1: I mean, it's sort of um, a mix, but I really love Cezanne. uh, And the the designer herself is actually her name is Morgan. uh, But her brand Cezanne has now launched in New York City as well. Um, which is good on many people's bank accounts. Uh, I'm a big fan of Kitsune, but it's very expensive, so I really only ever buy anything if it's on sale, and like I mean significantly on sale. Um, I like Veja for sneakers. Uh, it's all very is sustainably and, and and ecologically produced. Um, I like Comptoir du Cotonier, just sort of sophisticated, well-made blouses, pants, jackets, that kind of thing. Um, and in terms of big designers, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more into jewelry, I think, or, or bags um, and going straight to an actual designer. I tend to shop more at, you know, more established brands um, that aren't necessarily cha- like major chains, um, but I'm not shopping at, uh, oh, what, would, what, would, what would an example of a, a very famous, I'm not shopping at Chanel or Dior.
0: Right. Because it sounds like Paris, especially, um, now has a lot of new people coming up who, you know, you could get something maybe a bit more original.
1: Oh, completely. I mean, in terms of bags, there's a, a designer I like. I mean, her her brand name is Fovit, um, but the designer Claire is someone who is doing fantastic leather work and all handmade in her little workshop, um, which also is a store called Atelier Curran. Um, And she shares that space with a jewelry designer named Louise Damas, and I have her jewelry too. So I tend to gravitate toward, um, especially for accessories, um, people like that who who are really talented and 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 who I want to support more than the big guys.
0: Yeah. And you talk about that in your book as well, the French families who are sort of reviving these traditional crafts. Could you share some of those stories? And also, I'm specifically interested in about paper, because I just think Ah. that's so gorgeous.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been really pleased to see that stationery and cards and, and all sorts of paper goods have come back. And I think, in any case, I mean, Americans have always, you know, there's The brand Hallmark clearly did not come from France. Um, People don't really give as many cards um, for any old occasion. That's very American. But so when they do write something, it's really kind of meaningful. And um, I think we're all sort of overwhelmed by our digital appendages these days. And so it's been a great opportunity for brands like Papier Tigre and Letterpress de Paris to to come about um, because they have a market and it's and it stands out certainly when you're shopping and you're like oh look at these beautiful cards and you realize that they're all made in traditional ways um you know the letterpress brand especially i mean it's all printed in-house they had to get special machinery the the trade itself was you know dying out and you know he's one of the um one of the people who, who have been reviving it and they do special collaborations with French designers and have different designers work on different sets of cards and they're all signed by the designers. So, you know, you're getting something really original. Um, and, and it's just beautiful. I mean, he put, he, he, it's not a huge operation, but you know, the, the printer he works with has been in the industry for so long. And finally, he's printing things that he actually, you know, feels good about. He thinks they're cool and they're, they're beautiful and they're artistic. Um, And there are examples of these trades also like, you know, in in leather making and jewelry making, um, all of these traditions need to stay alive. And so having these small ateliers or workshops, um, some of some of which you can actually visit and they double as as boutiques is great because you see the person there. Um, Or at least, you know, that everything in there is has been handmade and and is unique. Can you give us one or two more examples?
0: And also, is, is there a specific like neighborhood? where a lot of these can be found?
1: You know what? It's really all over. Um, I would say there are big areas, though, where you're starting to see um, a proliferation of more in, like independent boutiques like this. So in the North Marais, which is where I shop a lot, in the 9th, in the 10th, um, and a smattering of little boutiques in the 11th as well. Um, but like Alix uh, Renis is a ceramicist who has a beautiful boutique in... Um, in the third. Um, and so she makes dishware cups, um, other types of accessories, but then also on the upper floor, she does jewelry as well. So, you know, it, it feels like, okay, this is something I'm going to get here and, and really nowhere else. You also have, well, Astier de, de Villette is far more well-known and far more expensive in terms of the porcelain and ceramic work. Um, But again, they too revived an old trade Um, in terms of clothing and bags. I mean, you have um, Verbreuil, which is a family run uh, luxury leather goods. Um, So bags, wallets, uh, keychains, this sort of thing. And they work with the best leather makers uh, in Europe, Um, some of whom are like the only ones to have the skill to work with certain types of leathers. So. You know, I think there's this real desire on the part of many people, many, many entrepreneurs or or crafters to make sure, even though they're young and they're innovating and they're, you know, producing styles that may not have existed before, that they're really still honoring the the trades of the past.
0: And I just want to book my ticket right now to, <laughs> to Paris. This, I, I love design. Never yeah. Before I let you oh. go, I would love to do a quick lightning round of some of your Parisian favorites. Mm hmm. OK. OK. Pastry and pastry shop.
1: OK, so I have two
0: uh, food patisserie, which
1: uh, and I don't know if you want me to explain it, but it's a yeah. uh, it's a concept, well, a concept store, which means nothing to a lot of people. But that essentially means that under one roof, you have a variety of uh, different desserts and pastries and, and chocolates and things from uh chefs across the city. So rather than having to go to all of them, you've got a a pretty robust sampling in one place. I also really love bonton, which um, is in the Marais, and it's uh, sablé cookies, which are filled with a variety of different creams, ganaches, uh, other beautiful things uh fruit or chocolate or with hazelnuts whatever's in season uh and it's just an absolute favorite um how about bakery so there's one in my neighborhood called utopi or utopi or utopia basically um and it's great it looks like your average you know neighborhood bakery but turns out some really impressive things they do a um a coal baguette uh so it's all black you know, very ashy, um, among other breads that are beautiful, and then they have beautiful pastries themselves, um, and tarts and cakes and things like that, and and very very good viennoiserie, which are breakfast pastries. So you know, your croissant, or your pain aux amandes, uh, or your pain au chocolat, brioche, all of those things, beautiful at Utopie.
0: Do people buy baguettes every day? Is that a real thing?
1: Um. A certain generation, certainly, I do see them buying baguettes. But then, as you get younger, it's usually like more rustic loaves or, or what, what's called a baguette tradition, which is a different sort of, uh, of baguette, which has more restrictions on it. You know, what what actually is considered a, a baguette tradition has uh, some very clear. Um, uh, elements, okay. but, um, yeah, I mean, people are still buying bread. It's less than before. And by before, I mean like 10, 20 years ago, the consumption was much higher. Where do you go for brunch? Um, usually cafe Mericourt, And which is, oh, sometimes I'll get shakshuka. Sometimes I'll get a green bowl, which has halloumi and quinoa and, avocado and pickled onions and that kind of thing uh he also does amazing pancakes that change with the season so he'll have toppings uh usually with ricotta but also with um seasonal fruit right now he's got kiwi and figs it's beautiful flavorful you know just a different way of doing pancakes
0: um where do you go for dinner
1: um, typically at a place called Tenet, uh, right in the 11th and it's beautiful. I, it's simple. They know me. I know them. I feel comfortable there and the menu changes regularly. So I'm, I'm usually able to try a variety of different things.
0: How about wine or cocktail bar?
1: Hmm. Well, I mentioned Martin before and cocktails, I'd say my, my, uh, hangout of late is Bisous. So that's the place I was telling you about that is across from Martin where there's no menu, uh, but you you can specify what you like. And he'll even customize a, a mocktail if you're not drinking alcohol but want something great. And uh, and I've actually had that before, and
0: it's fantastic. Very creative. I love that you could get a signature drink. Yeah. That's such, yeah. such a special thing, especially maybe even a birthday or something. It is special. The trick is then, if you
1: really liked it, trying to remember the the combination so that they can recreate it easily they need a system
0: um are you a museum goer
1: um very rarely but my favorite is the musée d'Orsay which isn't a super original um favorite but it just there's something about that museum when i'm inside i just feel inspired
0: um you're obviously a resident so you're not staying in hotels but do you have any recommendations of where people should stay when they visit Paris, either neighborhood or actual like name of a hotel?
1: Well, that really depends on, on budget. And I know that really, you know, runs the, runs the gamut, but um, you know, I really like hotel Providence. Uh, Hoxton is a new hotel. that's fantastic. That um, is a, is a British group and they have a, a hotel in London and Amsterdam. And so now their Parisian hotel is probably the most grand of them all. It's beautiful. Um, and you know, on a on a smaller budget, I think you've got a place like Hotel Paradis, which, you know, may run max 100 euros a night for for a small room, which is still pretty good if you want, you know, comfort and cleanliness and that kind of thing. Um, so really it just depends on budget. I can also give you high luxury, but I don't know that that's
0: that's going to throw one out there. Throw one out there. Why not?
1: Um I really think the, the work on the Hôtel du Crayon was amazing. Uh, I, I really think they did a fabulous job redesigning it. And I, you know, some of the people that knew it before, uh, throughout the last, I don't know, four decades, four or five decades would say that, you know, it's it's lost a piece of its soul, but it had, it was really in need of a, of a refresher. It was very old, very dark. Um, and now it's, I think it's beautiful and and the rooms are, um, now not speaking about the suites and the apartments in there, which are, which are going to run you, you know, a pretty fortune, but, um, you know, the other rooms are just very smartly designed, comfortable, bright, um, and lovely. So it would, it's, that's definitely a a glamorous experience
0: to have. Mm -hmm. Is there any etiquette, dining or otherwise, that foreigners should be aware of? Saying bonjour when
1: you and, and au revoir or bonne soirée when you leave uh, an establishment. So whether it's a shop or a restaurant, um, it's kind of important. And also, if you're going to ask anybody a question, so let's say a salesperson, you have to have said bonjour first, or else they won't they won't answer you. You know, just be polite, and I think they that will that will speak volumes.
0: Well, perfect. Thank you, Lindsay. Um Where can people? Find
1: more about you. So I'm on the gram, the Instagram on uh, com, which is my website. I also have a portfolio website, but that's really for my editorial work. And that's com. and on Twitter and Facebook. So really, it's just the same name. It'll be Lost in Land, Uh so spelled N instead of I-N in the middle. And... And yeah, and and if if people head to lostinchaseeland dot com, they'll see all the the ways to contact me.
0: Yes. So we want people to have the best dining and shopping experiences and everything. So yeah, you're happy a, to help. You're a great resource for that. So thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you. I really wish I were sitting in a Parisian bathtub drinking coffee right now. How about you? And that's a great tip to say hello when you enter a Parisian shop. I used to be too shy to do this because I thought they would hate my accent and be rude to me. And then they were totally rude because I didn't say anything, and then I would think that's so rude! But then I found out, oh, it's actually really important in their culture to say hi when entering somewhere. So it can feel a little uncomfortable to try and speak French, but the effort is appreciated, and when you really think about it, it's just hello and please and thank you. Okay, you'll find Lindsay's great tips on postcardacademy.co/paris. And the next time you're in the city, make sure you get drinks at our friend Josh's Place, Candelaria, rated best cocktails in the world for a reason. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. This helps people discover the show. That's all for now. Thanks for listening and have a beautiful week wherever you are.